you have your Bible, find John chapter 19. We're getting closer and closer to the end of our study through the Gospel of John. And uh, after this week, we, we just have two more uh, Sundays until the end of the series. That's another reason you need to be here on May the 2nd, so that you don't hear the, the final one. You've been here all this time. But today, we're, we're in the final stages of our study through John. And today, we come to what many would consider to be the climactic, the climactic moment, event, of this whole book. Now, someone might dispute that and say, that should be reserved for the resurrection event in the next chapter. And you can't dispute that theologically. But I would say, just looking at John's gospel and how he's written it, the cross and the resurrection are, are really to be seen as two parts of the same event, the same saving event. And clearly this whole gospel from the beginning has been pointing us to and preparing us for what we're going to read today, namely the cross of Christ. So much so that some theologians have called the gospel of John and, and, and others have said the other gospels are like it. it this gospel of John is... is basically a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Like this, this whole thing, this is the climax here. So today we come to that, that climactic point. And uh, you know, the last few weeks we've been thinking about Jesus' last words to his disciples, his prayer in chapter 17 for his disciples, his betrayal and arrest, um, betrayal by Judas, arrest, and his trials before the Jewish authorities, Annas and Caiaphas, and before the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. We saw last week that Pontius Pilate gave the orders for Jesus to be put to death. And that's where our passage begins today. So uh, that being said, let's read our passage. We're going to begin in chapter 19, verse 16, if you've found that place in your Bibles, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Picking up where we left off last week, so... In verse 16, so he delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, and he quotes Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. 
but standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's sister were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, uh, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, "Woman, behold your son." When he said that, then he said to the disciple, "Behold your mother." From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, Psalm 69, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Turn the page. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, and he quotes Zechariah the prophet, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was, so, was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We ask as we come to it this morning, this, this momentous passage, this foundational passage of the Christian faith, would you give us eyes to see the truth here, minds to understand it clearly, hearts to embrace love, care about this, 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 these truths, this reality, and would you give us wills to obey whatever it leads and commands us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach. Give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, there is so much here. So much here. And if I were teaching through this book in a context where we weren't bound by semesters, and it just didn't matter how long we took to go through it. I would spend a whole lot more than just one week on what we just read. In fact, a couple of years ago in CBS, we 
did a study on the I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel as well as the sayings of Jesus on the cross. Um, and, and I took a, a different saying each week. And uh, we have more than one example of that in this very passage where uh, I thirst and it is finished. These that just pack so much truth and just simple phrases. So we're going to have to move somewhat quickly through this passage but there's still a lot for us to glean from it. As I try to think best about how to break this down and, and walk our way through it and teach through it, uh, you know, when we were reading it, you might have noticed that there are three, like, just very natural different scenes in this passage. The first scene you have um, where Jesus is led to the crucifixion and the inscription that Pilate makes and what it says on it and the Jews disputing what it says. That's scene number one. Scene number two, which is the bulk of our passage, is Jesus actually on the cross and what he says from the cross and what happens. And then the third scene is afterward, after he's dead, and Joseph of Arimathea taking his body and putting it in a tomb. Um, and you might, you might, it's tempting to think, though, is there something we can glean from each, each one of those different scenes? And yeah, there is. You could do it that way. But I think more helpful is for us to just think of two truths two truths that really rise to the surface of this whole passage. So if you're taking notes, here are the two truths that I, I want to guide us through in this passage. First, in the early verses, really the first scene that I just described, I want us to consider Jesus' victory over his enemies, his victory over his enemies. That may sound rather counterintuitive to, to, to this passage and something that would better be left to next week's passage in twenty chapter 20 in his resurrection from the dead but i do believe that if we look carefully at what john is doing here john goes out of his way here in chapter 19 to show that even in his death even in his suffering and dying jesus was gaining victory over those who were putting him to death so that's that's point number one truth number two really encompassing the two other scenes that i described both of Jesus on the cross and afterward in his burial, I believe we see Jesus' victory for his people. Victory for his people. Truth one, victory over his enemies. Truth number two, victory for his people. This is where it will be a challenge uh, to say as much as is here uh, in just a few words. So John is, is careful to note, as you noticed, not just what happened, but also how practically every detail fulfilled prophetic passages in the Old Testament. This is a rich passage for sure. With that, though, let's dive into the text and think first about the victory that Jesus demonstrates over his enemies, even in his crucifixion and death. We see that in verses 16 through 22. I love how in this whole neighborhood of John's gospel, John is careful to um, not, not use, he's, but he's highlighting, John is highlighting so much irony. He just, uses, he just points out a lot of irony. We saw it last week in his trial before Pilate. We don't have time to rehash it. You can go back to the podcast and listen to that. But we see it again here today, just in how John describes this first scene. So notice how John begins this sobering passage. Uh, in verse 16, he writes, So he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. This is the Pilate who just a few verses earlier in verse 10 brazenly told Jesus, Do you not know that I have authority to release you 
and authority to crucify you. And surely at this point, he felt like he was right. I mean, he, he, could, he felt that he was right. He could just sit on his judgment seat. He could just speak the word, and Jesus was delivered over according to his command, just exactly as he commanded. And, 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 and the last words of verse 16, which are actually the first words of the sentence of verse 17, the last words, though, of verse 16 are, so they took Jesus. They took him. And he was, as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, like, like a, a lamb led to a slaughter. So he opened not his mouth. Um, seemingly weak and helpless. And I, maybe seemingly is a little too strong because I don't want to overstate it. Um, as truly a man in our flesh, in our likeness, Jesus was weak and helpless. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, he probably at this point could scarcely do anything beyond be led and taken. I mean, this is a man who, who, who just moments earlier had been flogged and scourged, lost a lot of blood. But the verbs here, they delivered him. They took him. I mean, it's, it's, it's humility humiliation beyond description where did they take him verse 17 says he went out which means out of the city completely out of the city outside the gate of the city any of john's original readers of this uh, of this gospel would have immediately understood the significance of that imagery of jesus being taken out of the city um all throughout the Old Testament, I'll just give you a couple of examples, but all throughout the Old Testament, um, outside the camp what, or, 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 or the gate carried with it the stigma of being, of, of being under the curse of God. So let me give you one, one example. is Leviticus chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. Thus shall the, and this had to do with the sacrifices they were offering for their sins. Thus shall the priest do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp after sacrificing it and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. Or just this example in Numbers chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. Numbers 19, 2 and 3. This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red cow without defect, in, in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And the New Testament picks up this theme. The New Testament recognizes that. John doesn't spell it out here, but it is spelled out later in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13. The writer writes, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach, the reproach that he endured. So as John as John simply notes that they took Jesus and he went out. The, he went out. Those words are heavy with the weight of God's curse against sin. And to add to the shame and ignominy, 
John also tells us in verse 17, as the other gospel writers do, that Jesus went out bearing his own cross. You know, the privileged, the privileged to this day have, have people to carry their belongings for them, right? Um, Jesus was publicly led to his own execution, an execution that was reserved only for the vilest criminals, carrying his own cross. Just put yourself in the situation, not just carrying his own cross, but through crowded streets. I just, I mean, just think, like, who knows all the vile curses that he endured on, on that road curses for people who don't even know him and he was led to a place called Golgotha which John tells us means a place of a skull historians are conflicted as to why that hill bore that name was it because of the many deaths that occurred on it remember when Laura and I uh, in well, I was in seminary we spent a summer doing mission work in Uganda and in Kampala, Uganda, there's a, a whole neighborhood in that city called Chukubamutwe, which literally translated means to beat over the head. And they named that city because under the rulership of uh, dictatorship of Idi Amin, that's where they would take the people they wanted to get rid of and bludgeon them to death. And that whole neighborhood took on that name. So it was, was the place of the skull, Golgotha, was it named because it, it was that kind of place or was it because of the cragged rocks on that hill that resembled a skull? I ask, does it really matter? Either reason communicates to us the horror and the curse of what was about to happen. And John tells us what was about to happen. And it may be the most sobering words in this whole gospel what in some respects is the low point in all of human history, let alone the Gospel of John. Verse 18 begins, There they crucified him. If you just meditate on those words and put yourself there, there they crucified him. Sometimes, sometimes hymns help us meditate on these words alas and did my savior bleed and did my sovereign die would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I there they crucified him the whole gospel has been aiming at this point and to complete the humiliation John notes there in verse 18 that Jesus was crucified between two others the other gospels Matthew Mark and Luke identify them as two other criminals and he was counted as one himself when repeatedly, three times, Pilate himself said, I find no guilt in him. But it's at this point that John starts to make the irony apparent. Because in verse 19, Pilate makes a placard to put on the cross, maybe above his head. I don't, you know, above his head. That's another thing about thinking about the, the humiliation of the cross. You're watching movies, and the cross is always really tall, and you're looking up at the one being crucified, when really uh, it, 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 it appears from some historical accounts that the crosses were not tall. They were rather short and just in your face. So 
you could walk by the one being crucified and you're looking right in his face. And think about the humiliation of that. There's no separation between you as you die and those spitting on you and cursing you. He puts this, this placard on the cross and he wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Why did Pilate write that? Well, we said last week, probably to humiliate the Jews. He hated the Jews, right? And he wanted to say, this is your king that I'm killing, right? I'm sovereign over you. But it's also what he wrote on that sign. It's also somewhat a description of the accusation that the Jews had made against Jesus, and it was sort of coming back to bite them. The Jews saw what he had done. He didn't, they didn't like it. Obviously, they didn't like it. And they wanted him to change it and say, hey, just, just say that he claimed to be the king. And Pilate simply said, what I have written, I have written. The, the irony is, is that in simply trying to humiliate the Jews and to humiliate Jesus, he actually spoke the truth. And not only had he accidentally written the truth, but he had written it in such a way that the whole world could read it. In Aramaic, so that the Jews could read it. In, in Latin, which was the language of the government. And in Greek, which was the language of culture and commerce all over the world. So that all would be left without excuse. From the lowest Jew in the Aramaic to the most pagan and cultured Greek in the Greek, to Caesar himself in the Latin. And not only that, but John makes sure to leave us the clear insinuation, just in the way he words it here, that while outside the gate, as we mentioned, uh, for Jesus meant scorn and shame, for the rest of the world, it meant that they, it was, he was crucified right where everyone would pass by. And so... In the same moment that, that the whole world would walk by as they entered into Jerusalem, in the same way that they would walk by and heap scorn on him, in that same moment they would read the, read the truth about him in whatever language was the heart language for them. And that the irony is that in, 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 in attempting to shame Jesus, the truth about him was testified to the world. And the truth to which it's testified, it brought condemnation on the unrepentant crucifiers. The truth about Jesus was written on that sign. It was published to their eternal shame. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because what was for their condemnation was for the salvation of everyone who repents and believes. So as we look quickly at the remainder of the passage, think with me about how Jesus' crucifixion doesn't just demonstrate his victory over his enemies, but also his victory for his people. There is a lot going on in the next scene of the story. John, as I said, not only tells us what happened, but also the deeper significance of it, its Old Testament connection. We're going to do the best we can here. For example, the first thing that John tells us is that the soldiers... Uh, did as they would customarily do, which was divide up the garments of the one being crucified, which incidentally gives you another clue as to the humiliation of the cross. Not only 
not only were you there and deemed a criminal, not only were you there um, suffering in, publicly in the presence of people, not only were you there lower down right in their face, you were naked. You were naked. I mean, just think about that, that imagery. Uh, I don't know. I mean, just like in, in Genesis, like when, when Noah's son saw his nakedness and the shame and the curse that came along with that, and you have the world bearing uh, witness to the nakedness of Jesus, the shame and the curse it brings on the world. But John tells us that in dividing up the garments, they were fulfilling unwittingly Psalm twenty-two eighteen which was a psalm of David. And there he wrote, They divide my garments among them, and they cast, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 is a psalm of, of David that was clearly on Jesus' mind. He wasn't just pulling this randomly. This whole psalm was on Jesus' mind as he hung there dying. How do you know that? Anybody know the first words of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that's what Jesus would later cry out. A few verses later in, in Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7, David wrote, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. Jesus was fulfilling that in his own body. It's a, it's a psalm of suffering in David's life, Psalm 22. But he was also prophesying about the coming Messiah, the greater king coming, not just in his own life, but for the salvation of the people. I think John wants us to connect. I don't, I don't think he just wants us to see the suffering of Jesus here. He wants us to connect his suffering uh, to being for the salvation of, of all his people. Um, because I think there's m more here. I, I don't think there's any unintended detail here or just one that you can just float right on by. I think because in, in the next words, the next mini scene after they divide up his garments, he relates this scene to where Jesus sees his mother and presumably John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, standing there and he said to his mother, or he said to John, woman, behold, he said to Mary, woman, behold your son, and to Mary, behold your mother. And to John, behold your mother. Gosh. <sighs> if I can say it right, we need to think carefully about this important transaction that just took place. First, when Jesus looks at John and says, of Mary, behold your mother, I think we see a couple of important things about Jesus here. First, we see the sympathy of Christ. What do I mean by that? Think about what it implies that Jesus is telling John, Jesus is telling John to be the caretaker of his mother when he dies. Just try to think realistically about that. What does that imply? It implies that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, had presumably died at this point. She needed to be taken care of. Um, if he was still living, there would have been no need for John to care for Mary. So it's, Jesus at some point had suffered through the death of his earthly father. 
You think about that. Jesus knows how to sympathize with us when we suffer loss in a way. He in his life at least suffered the loss of his father. He knows. Even before he suffered the pain and anguish of the cross, he knew the pain of loss. And for the same reason, no doubt, Jesus took on a huge responsibility in his family um, after the death uh, of his father. Hence, he's the one making decisions about his mother. Who's going to take care of her after he was gone? I don't know if any of you have felt the weight of great responsibility when you weren't sure you were ready for it or before you thought you'd have to deal with it. At some point, you probably will. Christ can sympathize with you uh, because he lived it. So much so that it was on Think about that. This was what was on his mind as he hung dying on a cross. But I would point out one more thing about this. Didn't Jesus have brothers? Sure he did, half-brothers. Later on, two of them would contribute letters to our New Testament. James and Jude. But where were they? That would seem to be legitimate questions, but here's the thing. There isn't any indication in this story or any of the other Gospels that they were uh, even at Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, it's possible they didn't live in Jerusalem at the time, but it was Passover when Jesus was crucified, so you'd think they would... Be in Jerusalem for that. No indication in the Gospels that they were. And furthermore, the last time in John's Gospel that we encountered his brothers, it wasn't altogether positive. Remember back in chapter 7, verses 2 to 5? So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Sounds like Jesus didn't have the perfect family. And they were almost mocking him in their unbelief. And when it came time for his very public execution during Passover in Jerusalem, they didn't bother to come, so far as we know, and took no initiative to care for his mother, his widowed mom, whose son was dying right before their eyes, her eyes. So Jesus can sympathize with you in, in, in every way. When, when Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way as we are. I mean, just in this one scene, we, we, he's able to sympathize with the loss of a loved one, with, a, with an imperfect family. Jesus faced every root temptation and every basic situational hardship that we do in his life. He knows how to sympathize and to comfort us. But perhaps most significantly in this scene, uh, we see the obedience of Christ. The obedience, not just his sympathy, but his obedience. This is the connection between his suffering, and doing it for our sake. The obedience of Christ for our salvation. When he ensures the welfare of his mother when he is gone, what is he ultimately doing? He's honoring her. <laughs> he's honoring his mother. Quite frankly, in doing that, he's also honoring his father who had already died. Does that sound familiar? Fifth commandment. So even as he was dying on a cross for our sins, he was still being obedient to the law of God for our salvation. And there are two ways that theologians talk about the obedience of Jesus uh, for our salvation. Two kinds of obedience, active and passive. Active and passive. Passive obedience refers to the suffering that Jesus underwent for our salvation. What happened to him passively. He humbly took on human flesh to live in a broken world for our salvation. 
suffering on a cross. But his active obedience is his obedience to the law that he lived and did every moment of his life. For our salvation, we see him doing it here, even in his last hours, honoring his mother in obedience to the fifth commandment. We need both the active and the passive obedience of Jesus for our salvation. In his passive obedience, he took our sins on himself so we could be forgiven. But because of his active obedience, we can receive his righteousness, which we also need to stand right before God. It's incredible that all that Jesus, all that Jesus was telling us in three words, behold your mother. We see not only the sympathy of Christ, the obedience of Christ. I just want to draw your attention also to one thing in particular in this statement that he makes to Mary. Woman, behold your son. And it's the fact that he doesn't call her by name. He calls her woman. Now, I've already said way back in chapter 2 that, that in that day, that was not a term of disrespect. We saw it back in chapter 2 when he turned water into wine. And he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? He wasn't like, woman, you know. Um, but he calls her woman here. Not Mary, certainly not mother. Should we make a big deal out of that? Is there really any significance to that? I think so. Maybe practically, he's, he's taking her mind off of the fact that it's her son that's there dying and putting it on this fact that it's her Savior there dying. Over a hundred years ago, the British Anglican priest J.C. Ryle who wrote a book called Holiness, which I commend to you. Here's what he said about this verse. Hence about Mary. Henceforth she must daily remember that her first aim, Mary's first aim must be to live the life of faith as a believing woman, like all other Christian women. Her blessedness did not consist in being related to the Christ according to the flesh, but in believing and keeping his word. Think about that. Mary didn't have eternal life because she, was, she carried Christ in her womb. She had eternal life because she trusted him. And in his work as her Savior and Lord, that's a good reminder to us as well. If Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, received forgiveness and salvation by faith alone, the same is true for us. So in dividing up the clothes of Jesus, John highlights his suffering. In the conversation between Jesus, John, and Mary, he highlights that Jesus wasn't just suffering for suffering's sake. He was suffering for our sake. When Jesus, in verse 28, says, I thirst, we don't have time to go into it because we just don't. When he says, I thirst, he's highlighting the humanity of Jesus and his identification with us. We would thirst on the cross culminating in verse 30 when he cried out it is finished and he died what was finished in his death think of think of the several things that you've already come across in our journey through john you've seen in john 4 34 jesus said to them my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work you've seen in john 5 30 jesus say i seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me you saw in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. He did it perfectly. When he prayed in John 17, his high priestly prayer, 
before he was betrayed and arrested, he prayed and said, you might recall, John 17, 1 to 4, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the, one tr- the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on, on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. What work was he given to do? He says right there in the passage, to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given to him. You say, how do I know if that means me? Believe. Trust him. And it means you. Jesus said in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes. So believe. So trust. And as you believe, as you trust Christ Jesus as your Savior, know with confidence, according to this passage, it is finished. It's finished. He said so. There's there's nothing, absolutely nothing that needs to be done to bring you to God, to reconcile your life to Him, to know Him as your Heavenly Father, to know His grace and favor every moment of your waking life, to know that you are loved as much as Jesus Himself is loved. He'll never turn away from you. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, He meant that He has finished offering to the Lord God the perfect life you were supposed to live, but have failed to. And He had finished suffering in your place and mine, the consequences in himself for your sins and mine. So that when you stand before God, trusting in Jesus alone, you don't receive what you deserve because he did. And you instead receive what he deserves because he gave it to you as a free great gift of grace in your place as your substitute. That's the victory that he won for his people in his death on the cross. And it's a victory that doesn't just change our status before God when we trust Christ. I need to say this quickly before we wrap up. It also begins to change our very life before God and others even now. Notice at the very end of the passage, when Jesus had died and they pierced his side and they didn't break his legs because he was already dead, because he was sovereign over the hour of his death, unlike the other two, Notice who came, who John tells us came to get his body off the cross. Who does it say? Two guys. Joseph of Arimathea, and lo and behold, Nicodemus. Why tell us that? Because of the details that John reminds us of about both of them. He reminds us in verse 38 that previously, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but he adds this, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Then he reminds us in verse 39 that previously Nicodemus was a Pharisee who had come to Jesus, but at night, so that nobody would see him. Now what are they doing? Both of them, boldly, in front of God and everybody. Give me his body. Right? Come to care for the body of Jesus. Jesus wasn't even raised from the dead yet, but their lives were already changing because of their faith in Christ. We've got to wrap it up. point is this. Jesus doesn't leave us unchanged. His death meant condemnation for his enemies, but for his people, Paul would later say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And progressively till the day we die, he makes us more and more like him in practice. One day when we die or he comes again, on that day, we will be like him perfectly. 
because we will see him as he is. We don't have any time around your, our tables because I don't manage my time well. What I was going to tell you to discuss, and you can just walk away thinking about it, what did the Holy Spirit press upon you most strongly in these words? Think about that as you, as you go, and please, as you go, it, I hope there is at least one orange sheet that has writing on it, but put that writing on the back table as you go out, and let me pray for us as we go. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this word, and thank you for your goodness and your gospel. Pray that um, you would uh, speak to us even more and stir in our hearts in the, in the coming hour. Uh, as we hear your word proclaimed again, as we worship you in, in song. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.